0: Got your decision now,
1: don't I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast.
2: Welcome to the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. I'm particularly excited about this one. I've got a fellow 3-5 Marine across from me and uh,
0: Jericho Denman, laid-back berserker. How you doing? I'm super duper. I'm glad to be in the presence of so much Marine. Are you? I am. Yeah. Ra- it's always good. Always a good time. Right. Ra-
2: uh, Tom is still active duty yep. and, uh, he recently wrote a new book called Always Faithful, which chronicles, uh, his interactions with, uh, Afghanistan interpreter in the process of getting him to the United States after the disaster in Kabul. And, uh, so before we get into the story of the book, give us like your quick rundown on your background, uh, kind of the life
1: so far, just like, you know. Sure. Bullet points. Yep. This is always the worst part, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'll 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 give it a, a stab here. So, uh, grew up in Chicago. Uh, my mom was a Chicago cop. Uh, single mom. Grew up on the South Side. Nine uh, Eleven happened while I was in high school. I said I should go do something about that. Uh, but I went to college first, and I commissioned out of ROTC. Became an infantry Marine, team commander with three five. Went to Sangin. Uh, got back. Went to recon. Uh, became a JTAC. Went back to Afghanistan in two thousand twelve. Uh, School of Infantry uh, Company Commander Out in 29 Palms Then uh, I got pegged to teach At the Naval Academy So I went out And I got a degree uh, Master's degree in English Taught at the Naval Academy For a couple of years And I'm headed back To the fleet To be uh, The operations officer At 35 Hell yeah That was
2: really fast That
1: was really good yes. Super good you It's got almost you like practice. You're doing a book
2: tour Promotion or tour
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, I always say like uh, I'm the least interesting character in my story. And so like, I <laughs> that's always, not, that's far from one to talk um, <laughs> from true, you know, I, it's a great supporting cast and I'd much rather talk about, uh, those folks. Not
2: indicative of something an officer would typically say. So that's good to hear.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so my, my kind of connection to Tom is, uh, basically he's like my writing mentor, uh, is someone who's also involved in the book, Worth Parker, uh, retired Marine colonel. I don't remember if you'd met, but he's also a fan of your work from, you know, your, your doc. Um, But talking to him and then subsequently, as I said, Hey, we're going to be doing a podcast. uh, You know, everybody was like, man, he's a good dude. Like everybody was just like, and that's pretty much, you know, the community, that's the best thing you can say about somebody like, Oh man, he's a good dude, you know, and like really mean it. So super excited to have you. Not,
2: he's a nice guy. Not, he's a nice guy. If somebody says like, he's a nice guy, like you should be a little skeptical. Well, he's a nice guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Pass the good dude tests, and uh, yes, as someone who doesn't add a lot of value, you usually say like they're a nice guy. Yeah, uh, love to have him so, as a neighbor. Yep. Yeah,
2: yeah. And then you know it was really cool. Um, we were both in New York for the 20th anniversary yeah. of 9/11, and um, you know, being on. Uh, Engine 11 yep. uh, being a part of that ceremony and and seeing all you guys down there, uh, we were on the roof of the fire station yeah. and you were part of that big parade that went through. Man, like what a like incredible moment to experience as an American.
1: There's something really special and, and sacred about being in New York uh, on 9/11 and then getting down to Engine 1010 and uh, marching. What's the what's the pub that we? All rally at McDon O'Donnell's uh McGillica. It's, it's, uh, it's Irish. Stereotypical Irish Yeah, Everybody's
2: gonna hate us for not remembering
1: O'Douls, uh, O'Donnells. Uh, it's not O'Douls or O'Donnells. Uh, but uh yeah, it's, I, I've been going since 2015. Um I got wrangled into it by this Chicago fireman uh who asked me to come out and 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 what the first time I went out, I flew 25 flags for the the 25 from 35. And those flags have been flown in Afghanistan, and then we mailed out, uh, those flags to the fallen right. family. So pretty cool. This year we flew 13 flags for the, the, those killed at H and, and got them out. So it's a really special, uh, place to be in that sunset parade is really, uh, one of the most special things I've yeah. ever been a part of to, to be, uh, at ground zero as the sun sets, surrounded by not only Americans, but people from all over the world. Yeah. And singing, you know, Amazing Grace with the uh, bags and drums out the FDNYs. Uh, it's it's really just uh, a unique and really uh, incredible experience. And it's always good to be out there.
2: Yeah, it's one of those things uh, when all those bagpipes start coming down the street. Like you just, you like, you can feel the energy attached to that. not just from the music, but everybody collectively being right there next to the tower. Um, that's one of those moments I'm like, I was... On the Pearl Harbor, when the Pearl Harbor floated into Pearl Harbor on my first deployment. And I was like, man, this is just an epic American moment. And being on that roof to witness all that, like, I'll never, ever forget that feeling.
1: Yeah, you're seeing the Marine Corps, him, you know, surrounded by tens of thousands of New Yorkers uh, looking up. While, and then all, all of a sudden, bottles of whiskey just, like, start appearing and, like, yeah. getting passed around. Yeah. And then it's, like, more and more. And it's yeah. it's, it's really, uh, yeah, it's it's, it's it's cool, man. Yeah. 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 I was I was there too.
0: I don't I don't remember where. I was was probably hammered drunk somewhere. Not Oh yeah. yeah.
2: No, you were uh you were out with the ladies. Oh with the uh the CSTs. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Cool. Well, uh in both um our backgrounds and uh a big part of your book is uh Sangan as as a character in all of this and um you know that I, th- I think it's fair to say for both of us that that place kind of sculpted us in in a lot of big ways, right? And um, I, it's always interesting. Like I, I would love to hear it from your perspective, like what that was like walking into that, and and you know, kind of just describe Sangin as an
1: environment
2: and how you met
1: Zach. Sure, uh, you know, we had, during our, during our workup, it was still very coin centric. You know, when we did that last exercise out in Twenty Nine Palms, it was all about kissing the babies and and that kind of stuff, and so. That's kind of the mentality I I was headed into Afghanistan with. Is that uh, we're it, it was going to be the awakening 2.0, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and and so I read three cups of tea on the way over, uh, and then we were at Leatherneck doing the cultural training right before they you know they push us out, and and I'm quizzing my squad leaders on how to say like nice to meet you and thank yeah. you very much yeah. Tasha Tashakur, and I'm like uh, yeah, and like um, you know, <laughs> and then the the very first patrol it was a, it was we didn't have like a left seat right seat it was basically I went out on my first patrol outside the wire was with 96 Marines and I was leading that patrol and uh, I did not have half of the platoon out and we were in a complex ambush and so it quickly became like okay no one wants my fucking tea uh, no one wants it only people want to kill me yeah. um, and that really set the tone for the next hundred days where we were basically in a firefight for every day for for, yeah. for the first hundred days Uh I was on that patrol and, um, we were in in, 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 the corn was really high at that time. And so that, that added like a whole nother element that you, I've never, most things that happen in Sangin, most you, you've trained for. And so, you know, when you sh- shoot somebody, you shoot targets that look like people. When you do tourniquet drills, you've done tourniquet drills, you know, so most of the things that you do, you've practiced, uh, but I've never practiced moving and patrolling through overhead horn like you completely lose your yeah. situational awareness yeah. uh any kind of battle tracking and uh that same first patrol uh, someone got so close to us that uh, a grenade came over the wall and and you know so you, you do that uh frag out when the, and like you never think you're going to actually do the the, the immediate yeah. action where it's grenade 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 right. yeah. <laughs> and like uh no like no shit grenade 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 yeah. uh and then i hear snipers shooting on people people start dropping mortars started dropping and i'm like our mortars and i'm like Sniper's like, who are you shooting? Mortars. Like, that's got to get cleared by somebody. Like, we we can't just be shooting mortars. There's like aircraft in the overhead all over this place. This is Afghanistan. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I'm like, we got people throwing grenades over the wall. Snipers are shooting. I don't know who. uh, Mortars dropping. Uh, It was, yeah, definitely that baptism by fire. Yeah. Um, and it was a, uh, a very violent place and a very conventional fight where, you know, people kind of talk about the global war on terror, that, that there was no front line. And I, I would argue, though know, that there was very much a clear delineated front line. Yes, yeah, there absolutely was. And, uh, and, and so that's the fight we were in. Um, and it's, uh, about a couple of weeks into that deployment. Um, I had had a rough go with interpreters. Either they would uh, lay down in the middle of the firefight and then uh, we'd move and then we'd have to go back and find them in the corn. Uh, many of them were quitting because they said, yeah, no, fuck this. I'm out. I'm not getting paid enough to do this. Uh, and the ones that stayed generally didn't either speak English or didn't speak Pashto. So that was a challenge. Uh, and so when Zach showed up and he, le- he looked like a fit dude and he could speak English and he's past you, So he could definitely speak past you. And, uh, right away, kind of recognize like, Hey, in a, in a very transactional way, I was like, this guy is adds value to this team. He's an enabler. Yeah. Um, he can translate is, is, is what I really needed him to do. But, uh, pretty quickly it became evident that he was so much more than someone who could just translate. And, uh, Whether that was um, when, you know, the first time we took casualties, when he's out on a patrol with us, it was was an amputee and he picked up the rifle and and just held security without anybody asking. Um, We were headed into a village and he's listening to the ICOM and and he can hear them saying, we're we're about to start, initiate the ambush. And uh, he's telling me like, hey, you got to, this guy's in this building in this town and we're sweeping and you can only move as fast. as because we're in ranger file and you can only move as fast as the engineer is moving and it's hard to tell the engineer like sweep faster through this minefield uh and so zach just took off running and went and you know tackled and detained the guy who's gonna gonna start the ambush um and so just a number of things like that that uh he quickly moved beyond like hey this guy translates to for us to he's he's really one of us and uh and so yeah it was uh he's he's, he was a warrior in his own right. And, and it absolutely became part of first platoon. So I'm. Um, so you said 96 is, were you a platoon commander at this point? Yes. Or a company platoon commander? Yeah. Okay. So 96 is a, is a, is a pretty big number. Uh, yeah. We had about five guys from three seven, the unit that we were replacing on the patrol, uh, probably about 20 ANA. Okay. Um, gotcha. So it was. Uh, is that
2: the quote unquote black Friday?
1: Uh, no, I don't think that was, that was not the black Friday, but that was, uh, that that happened in November. Um, but we had the entire sniper section. So all of Banshee was with us. Uh, we had uh, a full EOD suite out on that. The entire mortar section was out. So I had a machine gun section. So I had, uh, I was plussed up because it was a three day operation that we had to go secure three battalion objectives. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I was, I was pretty plussed up, but it was, uh, like the ability to battle track mm-hmm. was, something that was immediately tested and, uh, very tough. And, uh, I, I mean, I can tell any number of stories from that night, but, um, it was a, it was a quick learning experience. I, the first time I was bounding from one cornfield to the next, as soon as I went out into the, in between the two cornfields, PCAM just hammered down on a PDF and, uh, d- dove behind some cover, which was just some drying wheat poppy or whatever. And, uh, it's, this guy's ripping through that, that obviously some concealment, but it's not to cover. Yeah. Uh, and it was the three, seven platoon commander. And, uh, one of my uh, machine gunners who was the, like the assistant machine gun section leader. So he had am uh, M4 with two or and I turned to him and I said, uh, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to suppress that window. You're going to shoot a, a 40 mic mic round. Are you ready? I'm standing up and started to suppress. He pops a 40 mic mic, silences it. We get into the next cornfield and the three, seven platoon commander grabs me. He's like, all right, Lieutenant Schumann, now that you got your car, it's time for you to start making some decisions. I was like, dude, I very much made a decision. Like, like I didn't want to die in the first five minutes of my first patrol. Like that was like, that was my decision. Like I'm pretty sure getting my common action ribbon is going to be, seems like it's pretty safe that that's going to happen. Uh, and while that was important to me 10 minutes ago to get my common action ribbon, like at this point, that is not what I'm actually driving my things here. so, So I hear you guys like and all like <clears throat> Marines from our or Marines kind of from
0: our generation. I'm not Marine, but like our generation of, yeah. of warfighter, like Sangin is like a it's a thing. Yeah. Right. So yeah. if you could kind of set the stage, like, so you're a platoon commander, like how were you guys arrayed? Like I have a decent idea how the, like conventional army was out there, not in Sangin but like other places. Um What did it look like? Were you guys kind of like VSO or were you in big spots and you just kind of like do search and destroy and and, or sweep and clear, whatever you want to call it? Or was it, you know, point efforts
1: to, you know, sure. I I wish I could say that that the mission was super clear. Uh, I think that was part of the problem is that it was never very clear what what the mission was. Um, We were operating on a platoon sized patrol bases. And so, you know, companies got, three platoons. And so they're kind of at three different positions. Uh, and it, at first it was just, the enemy is out there, like go fight and kill them. Yeah. Uh, and so up and you can't really do anything else. Once you've, you've got to get security established. And so it was really, like I said, a, a conventional fight. It was, we know the enemy's there and we're going to go fight them tomorrow and fight the enemy until you either take too many t- casualties or run out of ammunition and then go out the next day and try to push that enemy defensive position back. And so, uh, for the first month, it was really penetrating an enemy defense that before the Marines had been there, the British were there and they had pretty restrictive ROEs, I think. And so, uh, the Taliban had really built no shit conventional defenses in and around these patrol bases, uh, obstacles covered by machine gun fire, like standard defensive tactics. And so it was just breaking through those defenses probably for the first hundred days. And then, um, we had some really big success at at first, you know, we, we, our TTPs, we weren't, uh, the enemy knew the ground much better. They knew how to fight much better. And so at first we were definitely getting our ass kicked a little bit. Uh, it's, it's, it's safe to say. Uh, but within about 30 days, we kind of got our feet and and knew how to fight there. And, uh, things started to shift pretty rapidly. Uh, November was like that middle month where October kind of, taking a lot of punches, November, kind of an equal getting our footing. Uh, and then by December we were just stacking bodies and I mean, was like, yeah, nope, just play IDs. Don't fight those guys anymore. Um, and that, I guess that's a, one of the more unique aspects of saying it is that it was, it was straight up fighting in a minefield, Mm -hmm. just fighting in a minefield. Uh,
0: yeah. I mean, I know from the units I was in, like, you didn't want to go down South. Like you're going to like the dudes going down are like, yeah, somebody's gonna like lose a leg, like pretty much every platoon. Somebody's gonna lose a foot or a leg or something. Yeah, just walking around. So like I, like I, I went, to, I was in Canada a couple of times. I never really served in the South, um, but I can't say I was like upset about that.
2: Yeah, and our our overlay onto this as the sniper platoon was. <clears throat> it was both conventional and then it was outside of the norm is how we ended up being implemented uh, across the board with the unit. But essentially my sniper platoon got split up into sections. So there was a section with Tom. Uh, we got attached to the Lima company and then there was another one. So I didn't, interact with a lot of my guys throughout this whole thing. And we actually ended up kind of like more adopting some of the, the traditional doctrine from Vietnam when it came to just integrating into the the infantry platoon. So a lot of my camouflage was actually camouflage down. So I didn't really carry a sniper rifle, would, would just typically do two to four guys integrated into a patrol. Uh, and then our evolution, uh, across that was like what we found to be really successful was leave behind elements. So Mm -hmm. typically me and a spotter plus a machine gun, plus a a radio guy would, would set in place somewhere along the way. And they were just following us every time. So, uh, we found a lot of success that way, but it was very much like untypical sniper missions and the terrain like wouldn't allow you to do that. And that was why there was just no elevated terrain.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and
2: also, you know, I don't know what the
0: ROE was back then but I mean a challenge I saw with using snipers was like it's hard to establish
1: hostile intent when the dude's you know 1100 meters away you know what I mean yeah so it, the ROE was uh shifting from day to day yeah. sometime hour to hour and so some days uh you could kill a guy with the radio some days you can kill a guy with the shovel some days you could yeah. kill a guy basically for almost existing uh and then um then it, all of a sudden it was, no, they got to have a weapon. They got to be actively, you know, and so it was, uh, it was like chasing the tail of the ROE, which was really frustrating for us on the ground. So sometimes uh, pretty permissive, especially in those first couple of months. But, uh, and, and, so, and the thing that uh, I think a lot of guys struggle with is, is it felt like the ROE was tuned to how many casualties we were taking. And so if a couple of guys died, then you, you got to shoot, shoot some more people, and and if guys weren't dying, then like you couldn't really shoot some people, and um, that for me manifested on on December twenty eighth when uh, the tactical directive came down uh, for courageous courageous restraint. Oh God, I remember that. And, uh, it was that, you know, it was more valorous not to shoot someone, um, than to, to, to shoot them. And, and that that's how we were going to win. The war was through courageous restraint. And, uh, and so it, it became like very, Hey, do not shoot anybody with a radio. Do not shoot someone that's in placing an ID. Do not shoot anybody unless they're actively shooting at you. And, uh, and we were out on a, a mission and one of my machine gunners sees a guy, on a radio, which if it was the week prior, like he would have just killed that guy. Like, no, no question. Like that last corporal would have known, like, shoot this guy. Uh, but Marines follow orders. And the the new directive was that that was not good to go. So he turns to his squad leader and says, can I shoot that guy? And he says, nope, that's not hostile intent. Uh those marines were in a perimeter around a, a compound that had an, a couple of IDs in the doorway, and so EOD was coming up, and I was leaving a different compound to kind of link up with them. And as we approached uh, an ID and remote control ID went off, and uh, it immediately killed uh, Corporal Tevin win, which was in my, for my platoon it was the third Marine killed on one of my uh, missions. And you see Doc Long, my corpsman, this was one of his best friends, uh, is crotted, you know, and as you know not a whole lot you can do, uh, for a crowd. And so to see this corpsman crying, uh, trying to hold pressure on his best friend, but knowing that there's, there's nothing he can do. Um, you know, we, we went to the compound where we knew the guy initiated the remote control IED and we got in there and, uh, there was a middle-aged man and he had some teenage sons and we said, Hey, Checking it wasn't you, but the Taliban was just here. Uh, what the fuck? Uh and these kids, these teenagers got a real attitude with us. And it was uh all that frustration with the ROE, uh, knowing that we sh- that guy should have been dead and Corporal Nguyen would be alive, um, started to boil up yeah. in that moment. And and that's when it's very that's when you earn your pay as an officer and that uh Really, the only thing that was going to satiate my Marines in that moment was uh, a blood offering. It was, you took blood. We are going to take blood. And, uh, you know, if in Gates of Fire, the the platoon commander, Dianikes, kind of talks about um, that the role of the officer is self-composure. And that's to, to fire the, the men up when they're afraid and the, to rein them in when they've kind of gone rabid and, and turned to the rage. And it's tough to stand in that gap and that divide. And, uh, because you're equally as angry. Uh, I would have liked to kill those guys just as much as anybody else. Those guys were Taliban Mm -hmm. as fuck. Like there's no Mm -hmm. doubt that these are. And so it's just weird that like, I know you're Taliban. I know that you just supported killing one of my Marines. Uh, but now it would be murder to to kill you. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so uh, fill, bridging that gap and standing in that, it, it, it was uh, it was tough. It was a very tough day. Um, but yeah, the the Roe was kind of all over the place. Yeah, I mean <clears throat> that was for everyone. That that was
0: that was one of those times like when I I was in Afghanistan during that. Like when the, there was a tactical directive, you can't put aerial munitions on a on a compound. Like the guys out laying in the woods, you can shoot him with a bomb, but if he's in a building, you can't. It was like. So that was, like, kind of the beginning of the end for me. Like, oh, I'm going to retire. I'm going to get out, you know? But I think it is, it it does show just that that old, like, Vietnam, like, how things never change, right? Like, the, sure. the dudes in Vietnam are, like, doing more with less, you know, the impossible's routine. And that's just what, like, American fighting men do is, like, if we just were allowed to fight wars, how wars are, are meant to be fight how just uneven and how bad we would win um
1: it really came out in those scenarios it, it makes me think about you know people when you bring up vietnam people say like oh i can't how, how could my lie happen it's like oh like i i know how it could yeah. happen like yeah. uh i I've, I've, I've been like right on the cusp of it right it's like and it's, it's not like these are bad people like these are the people that bag your groceries these are people that you know uh park your cars you know these are these are good kids, yeah. uh, put in very bad situations and, and if left to their own device, uh, and that type of scenario, bad, bad things will for sure happen. And, and, um, and, and, you know, it, it takes a guy landing his helicopter and getting out and saying like, stop fucking massacring the village, you know? And, yeah. and it, it, and that's why, you know, I'd, it's so obvious, but leadership does in fact uh, really matter, uh, because, uh, the person who can step into those moments and say like, We've got to cease fire here uh, is, and it's, it's not easy because these are all helpful, you know, tough dudes. And to, to kind of step in that, in that gap, it, it, it's, it's not easy. And, and, you know, people really like this book, Black Hearts. You guys are familiar yeah. with it? Yeah. And to me, it's a book about if you don't have any leadership. Yeah. That shit will happen. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, you yeah, this is like, I don't know if you need a whole book to like say like our yeah. sar- sergeants got to do like be sergeants and officers yeah. got to do like, and so uh, it's, yeah, it's um, yeah. It's Lord of the flies, man. Like sure. people will go, we'll go feral, you know? Yeah.
0: And I, it's just that they become uncivilized, you know, bottom line. And there is, there is a balance there, you know, like I was talking about somebody with somebody the other day about what's, what's more kind of moral. Is it, is it to, just mask everybody and get it over with quick or is it to drag it on like we did with these really weird ROEs and like, it's always changing. Like what's at the, at the end of the day, what's, what's the more like morally sound thing to do.
1: Yeah. What's more ethical. I, I, I I took a philosophy class uh, at the Naval War college and it was actually Stockdale developed the curriculum for this course. And you know, what I kind of concluded is this, this concept of the tactical imperative. Is it? tactically necessary. And if it's tactically necessary, then it's morally acceptable. Yeah. And lots of things are, that are tactically necessary. This tactical imperative are inhumane, whether that's using napalm, whether that's burning Tokyo, like there's un. you you look back through what was no, like the guys who uh, were firebombing Tokyo, the guys who, who dropped the nuclear bombs, when they got off their planes were awarded medals, for valor. Mm-hmm. And it's like you just liquefy a bunch of babies. Uh we're yeah. going to w- award you for that. And so it, clearly we 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 view these kind of things as permissible and even commendable and even valorous. Uh that generally happens through the air. We we view those things like that, but then when the guy on the ground like uh it would be it's tactically necessary. There's a tactical imperative for me to burn this village. It'd be like, oh my God, like you can't, you can't burn the, it's like, well, if the mission is to destroy all the bad guys, there's a bunch of bad guys in this village. The best way for me to do that would be, but, uh, the the grunt is put in this dilemma where or just almost an impossible situation. Like you kind of alluded to that, uh, your tactical, your tactical judgment says, Hey, this, this, there's an imperative to accomplish this thing, but based on some arbitrary rules, I cannot uh, fulfill what I know is best. To actually accomplish the mission, not yeah. not it's not wanton violence. It's not like, hey, I'm bored, I'd like to just go burn the village. Now it's like, no, I know that this is the best strategy for me to advance on my mission. And so, I don't know. Uh, last
0: question for me to kind of
1: understand the lay of the land for that. Like, so you had you had
0: mortars, kind of organic or attached yep. snipers, MG platoon or MG section. Yep. How much? air were you guys getting, were you, did you have like your own like dedicated rotary or fixed wing air support all the time? Or was it
1: like troops in contact only or, or how did that work? So each company had a FAC, uh forward air controller attached to it. And that, and that pilot usually hung out in the COC and coordinated air from the COC. And then each company had a, a JTAC or two, uh, kind of out on the missions. Um, so- I sent, we had plenty of air and, and, and so, uh, any given day you could it, Sangin was the most violent engaged area of operations in Afghanistan at the time. And so we, we, air was pretty responsive. Um, so it was usually on station and if it wasn't on station it' get there pretty quick. Yeah. Lots of tens. A tens. what, what about mixed, marine rotary? Yeah. A lot, a lot of mixed skids. Uh, so, so Hughes and Cobras and, and, and then we, a bunch of F-18s, um, Many of my best days came from, uh, the skids, the the mixed sections of the Hughes and Cobras. And, um, there were two hellfire shots in particular that really, the the Taliban never wanted to get within 300 meters of us. They were always in the intervening tree line between us. And and because all they mostly wanted us to do was move around when we were by the IEDs. And so they would start shooting at you when they knew you were kind of in, in an IED belt. Um, but following two hellfire shots, I was able to no shit, you know, close within 50 meters. And every time we were able to close within 50 meters, uh, it would like be a bloodbath for them. Um, and so the, the you know, the first time we, we took a hellfire shot on these guys, uh, we came up on them when they're in the middle of their medevac. And it was, uh, there was dudes with guns everywhere and they were, Completely disoriented, and uh, that was a very good day. And then uh, the second time, uh, we'd been fighting to get to this one area for over a month. We'd been U-shaped ambush there, pretty bad. Uh, Bate and, and Laird and all those guys were did some really heroic stuff that day. Uh, but when we got back to this area, we did this Hellfire shot again. Enemies kind of uh, in complete disorder, and and we came up on them, and and so. Going online, you know, like echelon rights, yeah. uh, is not something we did generally because we, again, we walked in Ranger File, but a couple of times we, we know shit went online and just, that was, uh, those were good days facilitated by the, our friends in the sky. And, um, there's a, there's a battle of Thanksgiving when Will Donnelly was killed. He was a platoon commander, uh, in Kilo company and that Huey, uh, and, and that, that mixed section, uh, they kept running Winchester on ammo going back and flying back from Bastion, uh, which was where that airfield was. And they, they know shit that, that, uh, I think it was shootout. I I can't remember their call sign, but they commemorate the battle of Thanksgiving. They've got, you know, paintings in their uh, headquarters of, of that day. And so um, that's, that's a day that I think uh, Sotelo got a, a, a silver star. McCall got a silver star. That was a absolutely insane day, but without, that persistent overhead uh from Cass, who knows what would happen. But yeah, it was it, there was a lot of close air support. Yeah.
2: I guess the last thing <laughs> was just, yeah, Tom said it, but like the IED threat was just it was insane. It was it was everywhere. And the byproduct of that was just how slow, how how much it slowed everything down. Like you literally you couldn't really attack. Because you had to move in a single line. So it was very uh handicapping to, mm-hmm. to have to fight in this environment just strictly because there was so many IEDs that we found or struck. Struck. Yeah. That were within eye of our patrol base. Like a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every every ranger platoon that was in the South, like yeah. somebody Every every trip, at least somebody would step on some. Our our battalion commander stepped on a, a pressure plate down there, but it was low order. Yeah. So it just kind of like launched him like three or four feet, but he didn't get really fucked up. But it just shows you, man, like it was a super dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place. And not necessarily because of the like competence of the enemy, but because of like, the, you just couldn't walk
1: anywhere. You know? yeah. Every time you put your foot down, you, I mean, quite literally we're thinking like, I may not be picking this foot back up like it, yeah. and, and and doing that, and and that's why I always I'm a you know the champion of the grunts in uh, that you know for seven months to do that every single day, every single step to think this this very well could be my last step, and then to take another step, and then to do that tomorrow, and then knowing that you're gonna yeah. it's uh yeah it's um it's something,
2: and then I think there was a tertiary effect along with that too because it was so kinetic that and. I'm sure you guys found some, but the fighters that would come in from all over the Middle East to that section, just because like that was the spot where everything was going on. So like we had this influx of people who weren't just living there as Taliban but like coming in to fight. There yeah. Really it like, was pretty strong. The true believer was, was there. Yeah. 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 yeah, For sure. Well, so Zach, the interpreter had to endure years of, of Sangin. Right.
1: And, and that's the, the, the thing that's, um, you know, we went home, you know, I, I was back in Camp Pendleton and eating California burrito uh, in San Clemente and 24 hours after I left saying it, you know, and, and there's porcelain toilets and, you know, hot showers and, uh, pretty women. And, and so like, that's, that's the, that's the difference is that, uh, the, the war doesn't stop for them. And, and so he went, uh, from saying into Kunar and then spent, uh, Two years contracting out of Kunar with, I think there's some Army SF guys there and uh some CIA guys, guys potentially. And so he kept interpreting and, and and contracting for them. Uh and so the yeah, the, the the idea that the the war doesn't stop is hard to comprehend. Uh that you just live at the war. Like the yeah. like the war is your home. Yeah. And and then even when the war dies down. In 2014 is when uh, they pulled out Fab Wright out of Asadabad or uh, wherever he was in Kunar. Fab um, Price, Fab Wright, I can't remember the name specifically. But uh, he then just begins to be persecuted. You know, he starts to receive night letters, phone calls. And, and, and so uh, not only was this guy running through minefields with us, uh, he then, no shit, uh, couldn't leave his village without almost certainly being killed. And, and, you know, Taliban leaving night letters, uh, we, you're an infidel. We know you by name, this is Nulazaki. We know you served with the uh, with Americans, you're an infidel. Uh, we are going to cut your head off. And like, this is not hyperbole. This is what the letter says. Uh, and, and so to live in that constant fear under that constant persecution is, um, unimaginable really. And, uh, and and that's why we made this visa program, because we knew that, hey, these people are going to do something that is going to make them marked for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. So the least we can do is say, hey, you did this dangerous job. Uh, and because you served and you were our ally, uh, we'll provide you and your family a visa to, to help you escape this persecution. I think that makes sense. Uh, it's going to be hard to uh, solicit that kind of support without that type of program it's not why Zach joined joint. Zach didn't join because he was hoping to come to America someday. Jack, Zach joined up with us because he was hoping for a better Afghanistan. And he mm-hmm. thought this was the best way for that. So his intention, uh, was never, Hey, I'm going to do this so that I can get to America one, one day. And, and, but when it got to the point that the persecution was so persistent, uh, and that he couldn't work anymore and he had to stay in hiding, he's like, this is no way to be able to raise my family. And, uh, and, and I've got to find an alternative. So that's kind of when he started the visa, uh, process in about 2016. Okay. Yeah. And, and how were you keeping
0: in touch that whole time or did he reach back out or how did, how did that all come about?
1: So I, I was back in Afghanistan for almost a year and from 12 to 13 doing the, the JTAC gig. So we didn't really have much calm then. Uh, and then, you know, Added each other on Facebook, uh some messages between like 2013 to, to sixteen. But in sixteen is is when he said, Hey, I, I uh I need your I need your help. Um, I'm filling out this visa paperwork and uh can you give me a hand? And so that's kind of when we really started to and and how fast did that go
0: and like compared to the the sense of urgency that he had, was he like, I need to I need to boogie, I need to get the fuck out of here, or was he like hey let's start the process and it's gonna be okay I think or
1: how was that yeah it, it, the, knowing the sense of urgency on the the you know the yeah. tail end it was i would say it was like hey let's let's get this and, and because at that point we both trusted that the system was going to work and so we just we just got to fill out this paperwork and then we got to check this box and like we'll just we'll just go through the steps uh and so not an initially a, a big sense of urgency it's like tail man's trying to kill me I got to get out of here. Uh, let's do this paperwork. It's like, okay. Yeah. And then um, for about 12 months, we applied, engaged, responded to the the, the Department of State running the program. And, uh, and after about 12 months, despite our best efforts, uh, we gained zero traction. Yeah. We, we made not one step of progress in one year. And Zach's like, well, I can't put all my hope and energy into this thing that is literally not moving at all. I've going to maybe have to figure something else out. And so, uh, he's like, I'm just going to have to get on with my life here and probably get killed. Uh, and I felt very shitty, you know? Uh, and so once a year I would, I would find out about someone who had an interpreter that got back and I'd reach out to that interpreter and be like, Hey, who, who did you talk to? How did, and so I'd, I'd send Zach like, Hey, try emailing this person let's try to talk to this person. And from 17, 18, 19, 20, it was always kind of just a dead end that we would chase for a couple months and then kind of wouldn't work out.
0: Where, where was his, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but where was his, uh, SIV like when the withdrawal happened? Did he, did he physically have one? I can't remember.
1: No, it's just an app. It was just an application. So the yeah. first big milestone in that is to get chief emission approval. And once you get the chief emission approval, then you can kind of go to an interview, a medical screening and there's, but to get that chief of mission approval, uh, you have to have the magical HR letter uh, that verifies your time and service. And uh, so he had letters of recommendation uh, from 3-5. He had letters of recommendation from the people, some other folks that he had worked with. So he had plenty of rec- recommendation, but um, he only had nine months of verified service. And that was when he was with 3-5 and saying it. And, and, and his time in uh, Kunar, the, the guys he was working with are secret guys and they don't, you know, hand out their business cards really. And, and they're guys who are kind of rotating through mm-hmm. pretty, you know, and so they're in and out and not mm-hmm. really kind of establishing those mm-hmm. relationships. And then they know shit. Like he went to work one day and they weren't there anymore. Mm-hmm. And they didn't leave like a, a business uh, card, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, initially, uh, he initially the SIV program, the re- SIB program required 12 months of service. And so we were trying to, even though Zach served for about four years with the U S we were just trying to come up with a, a three month Delta essentially mm-hmm. to, to cover. And then arbitrarily uh, the program said, now you need to do two years as if one year wasn't enough. We called the Taliban and they said, if you only did 17 months, yeah. you're cool to stay. Yeah. <laughs> if you do uh, two years, they don't want you around. Sure. I uh, felt very arbitrary. And then, um, Lo and behold, they've now reduced it back to twelve months. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, uh, in fact, twelve months is is probably uh, good enough, I think. And uh, but, but we could not get that last three months covered, and it was it seemed very insurmountable. And 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 I can kind of get into when we really started to try to aggressively uh, rectify that twelve that, that 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 process is when the president made the announcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in April of twenty one. He said, "We'll be gone by the end of the summer." And I just reached out to Zach and I said, "Hey, what is what does that mean to you?" Uh, I mean, he said uh, in no uncertain terms that we will be killed. And I said, "Okay, well, uh, I'm gonna get busy on this." And and so uh, I did just a little appeal on social media. I just said, "Hey, uh, this guy Zach. He was my interpreter. He served with with the Marines in Sangin. If anybody can help." us with his visa, please let me know. That's all I said. And it, but it picked up a lot of support. Um, and before I knew it, uh, talking to congressmen, senators, all types of high level, uh, government officials, uh, you know, we're, we I'm talking to the lady Jen Steinhauer from the New York Times. She's meeting me out in Annapolis. Uh, we're FaceTime with Zach. We're on the cover of the New York Times. We're on the daily podcast. We we all these things. It felt like a lot of momentum was picking up and and that this this will help. Like if this if it's Senator Durbin, uh I'm from Chicago. So Senator Durbin during the Secretary of State's confirmation hearing said, um, Major Schuman is on the cover of the Chicago Sun-Times today. Uh, and his interpreter is stuck in Afghanistan. Uh, are you going to help his? And this is this is so to the Secretary of State, the guy who controls the visa, a senior senator, and uh, and the Secretary Blinken says, "I know who he is. I've read the article. I've got it for action." And it's like, okay, well, Secretary of State knows Zach's name. Uh, we're on the cover of the New York Times. Like, we've got generals involved. Like. This this'll probably this is and, and but it was just what it turned out, it was just false summit after false summit. Every yeah, time yeah. we thought like we're there, it's gonna it was false summit. And uh that's how that played out. Um you know, that's how the that whole thing played out. Yeah. And you so
0: <clears throat> I don't know if I'm skipping ahead here, but when did Zach and you kind of decide to pull the trigger yeah. to it just like yep. the H Kaya. Yep.
1: I had a buddy who I went to TBS with, uh, the basic, the Marine officer basic school. And he was a Marine pilot for a while. Then he did an interservice transfer to the air force and he was flying the paveways for the PJs. He's flying a helicopter for them. And I knew he was there at Ishkaya, And I, and I said, Hey, um, he reached out to me actually He said, I see that like, you're trying to help your interpreters. and uh, let me know if there's anything I can do. I'm like, um, is anybody going to go get these guys? Like, is is someone going to go pick them up, uh, or is someone going to send them an email and tell them, like, "Hey, come to Kabul because it's it's your time to leave"? Mm-hmm. And he's like, "No one's coming to get him. That's for sure." Uh, and uh, I wouldn't expect an email to tell him to come. He's like, "If if he's trying to get out, he needs to get to Kabul." Mm-hmm. And so uh, I said, "Hey, you, you got to leave Kunar," and and you know Zach's chapters do. Uh, a great job of kind of describing that. But I mean, imagine saying like, say goodbye to your mom, say goodbye to your family, pack your kids up, four kids and your wife on a total chance that this American guy, 7,000 miles away is saying like, you gotta, you gotta change your whole life right now. And, and, and the kind of the, 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 the Thing that shows the veracity of the the danger is like he said, yeah, I'll I'll go to Kabul and and so the, like the you've got to know that this guy is under a serious pressing threat mm. uh, when he's just packed up his entire life and family and and, and goes to Kabul and yeah. when he when he gets to Kabul we're still he gets there in in, in August and we uh, like the second week in August early and we still think even that even that journey from kunar to Kabul by the way was super dangerous super dangerous and then, and then we think. Well, we got to the end of the month. Like, yeah. that's our timeline. We're like, we're working to the end of the month, and so we're still trying to do everything procedurally. Let's get the passports. Let's get your IDs. Let's get you know. We can continue you to fill out these rosters and fill out these forms and make these appeals. And and eventually, you're going to get approved. And when you're approved, someone's going to say you can come to the airport and get on an airplane. Like that's that's kind of that that's the scheme of maneuver. And um, he's all kind of, there's all kind of friction and getting his passports and bribes that he's got to pay and all kind of stuff that that's happening. And then, uh, nightline was at my house doing a story on it and Kabul fell. Yep. And they ended up staying for like another 12 hours because it was like, Kabul fell. I was like, okay, uh, new plan. You got to leave today. Uh, and we, I, I knew a company commander in one eight who was working the... I, well, I didn't know him, Someone made that connection. Uh, this guy, Sam, who's a phenomenal dude. And uh, so I start talking to Sam and he's like, okay, uh, I'll be at the gate at this time. Send him to the gate. And so I'm like, hey, pack your bags, get to the airport. So Zach's got to walk almost five miles from his apartment with four bags and four kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, gets there. And as he gets there on the first attempt is when the airport gets overran. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's familiar with the images of the, the people running on the tarmac, people jumping on the planes. So it's just a bad luck, you know. Had he got there an hour earlier, maybe my buddy's able to kind of yeah. get him through. Yeah. Um, because Jared, the the the, the pilot, uh, the Air Force pilot, he said, if you if you get him through the gate, I'll finagle him onto a, a plane, you know. Uh, and so so the the whole thing was like, get him through the gate, yeah. just get him through the gate, and then we'll everything else will kind of buff out. <laughs> yeah and uh and so that first day when everybody started to overrun the airport uh the Taliban marines unknown but you know there's a lot of firing into the crowd for the crowd control and right next to his kids a the, the, the family gets killed mm-hmm. uh so they have to they spent about 12 hours outside the airport that day uh and they have to walk back yeah as you can imagine his wife is not stoked uh, about that. Uh, the kids are traumatized. And uh and I felt absolutely awful and very helpless, you know, as I've I've only, you know, led and commanded at the tactical level. And so, you know, you're always able to put yourself at the point of friction mm-hmm. and influence uh that and and to have to basically be running the C running things from the COC and my kitchen table in Newport uh, often felt very very helpless and frustrating that I, I couldn't actually, uh, and, and so next day I'm like, you got to go back to the airport. Uh, and he's like, I'm not walking this time. Uh, find me a ride. So we found him, found him a ride and, uh, same thing. They get to the gate right when they get to the gate where the, my buddies working security that day, uh, it starts, the crowd starts to press. They close the gate. Is that Abbey gate? That was in that time it was in North Gate. The first time it was outside the Abbey Gate, then the North Gate. Um, and you know, he's sending me pictures yeah. of Marines that he's one arm's distance from. And I'm like, tell that Marine that you know his company commander, yell the company commander's name, tell him that you know their company gunny, so you know Major Schumann. Like, and it's and, and he's sending me a video and and he's and he's saying, I'm telling these Marines like that who you are, who their company commander is, they can see me, they're not helping. Uh, tell me what to do. What do you want me to do? And as he's doing this, he's sending me this video on WhatsApp. Uh f- fire starts coming over their head, and he's got his two-year-old daughter on his lap and she's screaming, crying. And it's just like uh it's so sad and uh just felt, yeah, it was just awful. And same thing. Um, they closed the gate because too many people were pressing in on the gate. And they, they went back, the guy who drove them to the airport, uh, this guy Malad, his father-in-law was killed while they were at the airport because the Taliban had been tracking them and knew that he had gone. And so, yeah, I mean, the, after that
0: experience, like I have, I've always loved Marines, but what the Marines were doing out there it like it gives me that like little twinge in my nose. Like I'm so fucking proud of like the way those guys behaved at those gates. It was just like so hard. And like you talk about, you know, him yelling like, Oh, I know this guy for, for every guy that had a legit, I know this person. There were 50 Afghans like, I know Bob Smith from, cause they learned. Sure. Like, yeah. They're super adaptable. So they, they'd come up and, you know, they'd have some random piece of paper that, you know, cause they worked in the chow hall in Bagram in like 2004. Sure. And, and that, so it was seeing those like young Marines, like having to basically triage, like I've, I've talked about before, like at that time, you know, not knowing what was going to happen. When you turn someone away, you're like, you're going to go die. Like is basically what, what you thought. So, uh, super, super empathetic to the, the Marines that were there. And it was like, yeah, you may, you may know somebody, man, but like, I don't know that. And I can't let you in, you know, cause I'm and, just a cogna.
1: The- that's the, that's the real, despite the failures of, of, of everything that happened, that's the real bright spot yeah. is that those men and women, 18 years old in the middle of a complete disaster, you know, held the line.
0: Yeah. And, and, and had never, ever, ever trained for that. Like I couldn't have dreamt up that scenario in my head yeah. and here they are on the line doing it without the mental and pre- preparatory tools to
1: do it. And they they're doing what Marines you know, have always done, and that's been given an impossible task, and just figuring the fuck out. Yeah, and so these these eighteen year old kids from two one one eight, were that they were living this the 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 ethos of no better friend, you know, and, and they and they were doing everything they could at the tactical level to keep that promise alive that we made to those people, and so they really are uh, the, the the their valor, their courage, uh, what they went through is is worth highlighting and, and and it's just uh incredible um the last the last attempt the one that ended up being su- successful uh my, my buddy said hey there's a cia gate um you gotta do a little fancy dance and they'll know to come out to get you yeah. and so that was like COA one uh COA two was there's a there's a East Gate mm-hmm. um between Abbey and the North Gate, there's an East Gate. And if you go to that and you give a challenge and pass, you got to ask for Samir or something and give a challenge and pass, you you can you get in the East Gate. And then COA three was just go back to the Abbey Gate and we could try, you know, one eight again. Yeah. Um every time Zach got to the airport, our plan did not survive contact, right? And yeah. and it became very disorienting for him. And if you've I've, you know, I just flew with my three kids, like traveling with a bunch of small children is just in and of itself in a perfect conditions is very tough <laughs> trying to do things with four kids in your life uh, where there's 20,000 people all around, I'm guessing is, um, pretty, pretty tough. Uh, so, you know, I didn't want to do that complex. It was, it was a, it was a plan of, uh, like high probability of success, but high complexity. So mm-hmm. we threw out COA one, uh, Koa to this, this army major, she was like, I've been getting people to that gate all day with that challenge of pass send them to that gate. I'm like, okay, that's, that's what we're going to go with. And so gets in, uh, Malad's car again, goes to the, uh, goes to the airport, but doesn't get dropped off kind of in the right spot and ends up outside the Baron hotel. Okay. And there's a tailband checkpoint between the Baron hotel and the East gate, mm-hmm. uh, crowds are everywhere. And, I'm like, okay, you need to go to that, look to the wall and make a right and just keep traveling along that wall and you're eventually going to hit the east gate and he's like, I can't. Someone's got to come get me. I'm like, that like no one's going to come out and get you. Like you got to go to that wall, make a right and get up to that east gate. He's like, I can't move. I can't get anywhere. Uh so I called my buddy Jared and I was like, uh I need your help. And he's like, I'm in the COC, I'm on watch not authorized. Uh, I'm like, dude, I need your help. Uh, So I start a WhatsApp chat with me, Zach and Jared, send him a picture of what Zach's family was wearing that day. And Jared grabs some PJs and Mm. they jump on the wall and and he sends a text. Zach, put your son with the blue shirt on your shoulders. Uh, Zach doesn't respond like 10 minutes later, Zach, put your son with the blue shirt on your shoulders. And then radio silence for over an hour. And, you know, I try not to be that guy in the COC to be asking for the sit reps and kind of pushing when the troops on the ground are trying to work out the situation. And so that hour was uh, suspenseful to say the least. Uh, and then the next picture I, I get is, is, is we got them. And uh, yeah, these guys jumped the wall and pulled them in and uh, yeah. absolute heroes. Yeah. Uh. yeah, I know right where that...
0: But it goes to show you like some of the things that like we take for granted um, in communication, right? Like you're out there like your WhatsApp would just stop working because, you know, when you go to a football game, your phone just stops working. That's like what was happening. So your phone would like be working fine and then just stop working. Also, the language barrier was an obvious thing, even though he's a Terp. Like Terps don't know how to land nav. Sure.
1: That was if you're like, that was one of our friction points for sure. Face
0: West (laughs) and then take a look, they would just completely botch it up. Like, it's not their fault. They just don't fucking know. So, those like talk ons were holy fuck. Like, some of the most frustrated moments of my life were doing those very like talk ons where you're like, fuck. And you get mad at the person you're trying to get out. You're like, motherfucker. Like, I'm trying to help you quit being stupid, but they just, don't know so yeah those but I don't want to jam them up but like there were some PJs there man and those dudes talk about courageous like and just what Americans are all about those yeah. PJs were like running themselves fucking ragged yeah. to get people out and they're like hey that's what we do we do personnel recovery so we're gonna fucking do it It's yeah. like the biggest fucking rescue that PJs have ever fucking participated right. Right. in and they got after it, man, and they did so much good shit.
1: Yep. So others may live, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So um, let's talk about how,
1: if if you're good, let's talk about how the book kick off. Sure. It it was interesting because oh, our story became very central mm-hmm. uh, as those, we, as as everything happened in August, our, our story kind of became one of the mm-hmm. storylines. Uh, and at some point, you know, I put Zach's face out there and immediately everyone's like, great, nice job. Now nah, you killed them. Ever hear of OPSEC? And it's like, no, I never heard of it. Like, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's like, yeah, the, the guy that I've been doing everything I can for the last five years. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm volunteering him up to get killed. You're, you're right. Uh, and just scathing, scathing comments and tons of hate. But it was like, for a compelling story, there's got to be a face. Mm-hmm. And, and and so what people see is a mass of people outside an airport. You might think like, oh, that's sad. Like it's it's clearly sad that there's all this these. But when you put a face and a name, then it's like, okay, now it's personal. Yeah. And so Zach and I talked about it. And we said we're gonna put your face out there. And 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 it did. It you know seventeen thousand people liked that first post that I put up with his face on it. You know. And so it and to some degree accomplish, uh, the, the goal or the intent behind it. Um, but then when Zach got out, everyone thought like, Oh, you're, you're the only guy we know that got somebody out. Like you, you're the success story. I'm like, I am not a success story. Like, I've spent five years failing. Mm-hmm. I almost got his family killed on three different attempts uh, and the only way he got out was nothing through proper procedures, nothing through a system. It was through a personal favor from a friend. So I don't think this can be replicated, and I should not be the guy that you're going to. To, but you know, every veteran was messaging me, and then the tough part is, and I know that you know this well, but thousands of messages from yeah. Afghans, and every time it's like, don't don't do it for me, but but, but please save my children. Mm-hmm. And like I got three kids, you know, and these people are sending me pictures of their kids and it's like, uh, do you, f- do you open yourself up and feel that each time or do you be callous, you know? And so it's like shitty kind of conundrum you're in yeah. with, yeah. with, with that. Um, it was, it was triage, man. It was, it was like,
0: not necessarily who are the people that deserve to get out most, but the people who have the best chance. Sure. You know? And, it fucking sucked for sure for, for all of us, like you guys, and just like having to be like, Hey, you know, we're not going to get you through today. Yeah. Come back tomorrow. Maybe it'll be open again or whatever, but.
1: You, you know, uh, Joe Patterson, he, 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 uh, so he, he covered your guy's story when he went out and did the snipers course with coffee or die. Uh, he was a platoon commander in three five. So this one guy kept messaging me on LinkedIn and DMing me. And uh, he's like one of those guys that he doesn't have like a picture in his Instagram profile or his LinkedIn, you know? And he's like, Oh, like let's make a movie. I'm like, uh, and then Joe Patterson like says, Hey, the president Academy Awards is, uh, wants to ma- produce a movie with you with, with, with another like real producer. Like you need to respond to his message. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh and then that guy's like, yeah, we've got Bob Rodat who wrote Saving Private Ryan uh, and The Patriot wants to write the screenplay. And I'm like, that seems pretty legit. Uh, so that that was like, that was kind of the first step into this. Uh, and then, um, yeah, Worth, Worth uh, Parker kind of reached out and said, hey, do you consider writing about this? And uh, I... I had just had, I had three kids in under three years and I just had my third kid. I was at the war college. I was doing stuff with PB Abate. It was like, uh, I got a lot of hobbies, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was not necessarily what I had been considering. And, but, uh, you know, I talked to worth for a while and he's like, I'll, I'll, be able to help out. And, uh, I read some of the stuff and he's, and he's like, let me, let me pitch this to my agent. And, uh, we genned up a proposal and, um, it's the agent liked it and took it to some publishers and some publishers liked it. And then, uh, we were writing a book. Did you know worth prior or was this, uh, no. So worth and I first connected through, uh, just the evacuation. Uh, what what was the thing that you guys were running? Uh, team America. Right. And so he, he'd offered some support and said, Hey, I heard you're trying to get some people out. Maybe I can help. And so, Uh, He brought me like one or two of the Team America meetings that they were doing. Dunkirk. Yeah, Team Dunkirk. And and, and so that's kind of how we got initially connected. Um, I think we had some mutual friends, uh, but did not know each other personally before that. Hmm. Okay. And the book is like,
0: it hooks you, man. Like you guys fucking nailed it the way like chapter from you, chapter from Zach, like, is that how you say his name? Zach, Zach yeah. Zachy? Um, It like, you want to binge it, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like a, because a way, and it just goes to show like the guys who are involved with like writing it are fucking awesome. And they really understood the world. You guys really understand the world and like pacing and all that. Like it's just written really well to where it's, Again, it's like, it's a book, but it's like a really rad TV series. So like you get to the end of chapter and you're like, I can do one more.
1: Yeah. I can do one more. And the alternating narrative was really important. You know, I, I I wasn't, I don't think the world needs one more like American white dude to say like what the other parts of the world are like, right? And, and I, and, you know, one of my, I taught uh, this class at uh, the Naval Academy called Literature War. We did Vietnam um, literature. And and one book we did was a, by this guy named Bao Nin. Um, and his book's called The Sorrow of War. And and so to, to read about Vietnam from an NBA soldier's perspective, yeah. I thought is, you know, there's so much value and insight to to a guy who it's his country. Yeah. He's lived it. And so I love the Vietnam canon. You know, I love Matterhorn, Fields of Fire, and the Village. I, I can read those books all day. Uh, but there's something really valuable to to hear about it from. Somebody who can speak to it firsthand, and so when when Harper Collins supported the the idea that Zach and I would, would would both our voices would be represented, I said, yeah, let's do this. Let's let's have an Afghan rather than me, a guy who spent 17 months there, say like, well, here's what Afghanistan's like. It's like uh, maybe a guy who spent his entire life in the war uh, might yeah. have a pretty good perspective that we might all benefit from. Yeah, like immediately in the beginning, he's talking about going
0: to a Taliban basically mullah and being taught like the Quran from a Taliban, you know, dude, it's like, Holy shit. I'd never thought of like these guys who were supporting us. Like they grew up with the Taliban, with the
2: Taliban,
1: you
0: know,
2: it's wild. You really get the weight and the gravity of it taking place over the course of 20 years, because you start out with Zach and it's like hearing nine 11 from his perspective. And I was like, I've never even heard any Afghans talk about, what it was like over here during that. And you really feel him going through this and understanding that life will change and and him knowing that at a a young age and then getting into what he did across this timeline is insane. And like you said before, like we, we took breaks and like it wasn't just, you know, a few years of combat. It was, it was a lifetime this
1: dude had to endure. Yep. Uh, how's he, how's he doing? What's he doing now? He finally landed in San Antonio after a very long journey to get there. Um the you know, the story did not end once he got pulled through that gate. There was a lot of still trials uh to get him to where he is today. What what was his uh his path? Did he go Germany? Cutter, Germany, Philly, uh Virginia, Fort Pickett. Then they resettled him into Minnesota in January. Uh, that's when I went and flew out and said, You want to get out of here? He said, yes. Uh, and so he'd always wanted to get to San Antonio cause he had some cousins there. Okay. And as you know, that it's important to assimilate, uh, yeah. I think with some support. And so, uh, I bought him a ticket that day and we, four, it was, what was it? Seven passengers, eight bags four car seats, uh, flew from Indianapolis to Denver to San Antonio. Um, it was really special, you know, settling him into his cousins. They his cousins, I, we landed like almost like at 1 a.m. And I had like a 6 a.m. flight the next day. And I was staying in a hotel by the airport. And I'm like, all right, your bags are loaded. Love you, man. So glad you're safe. And the cousins were like, oh, no, like, you're coming to dinner tonight. Like, you're the guest of honor for the, the, like, the dinner tonight. I'm like, yeah. oh, like, that's very generous of you. But like, no, I'm not. I've got to go. And <laughs> like, like, they're like we're not leaving until you get in this car. Uh yeah. And uh it was really special to be there because having a traditional Afghan meal, sitting on the ground, you know, eating naan and, and the rice and seeing all his little kids running with their little cousins and his wife is fine, and it's like, it's like this is the mission isn't over, but this is this is like what we've been working towards this whole time to kind of see this moment. And so um he is hanging drywall six days a week, 12 hours a day, uh at a cancer hospital in San Antonio doing what many immigrants do. And that's the hard work that no one else wants to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, his visa is still not approved. Mm.
2: Is there hope on the horizon or?
1: That was, we, we are on the final appeal. Yeah. And if the final appeal does not work, uh, he could be deported. Uh, and, or, or, you know, we'll have to try to file for asylum. Um, but.
2: Do you know what the, Hold up is there is it the final signature or is it
1: it's still the h r letter even though we 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 found the company uh that he worked for in in Kunar and they provided a supplementary h r letter that now gives him the prerequisite uh time and service even with that supplementary letter uh the package was denied, so we appealed it saying like we don't understand he, he, everything that he now meets the requirements um so unknown what will happen or where it will go. Uh, we we appealed it in March. So wow. bureaucrats, man, fuck. Well,
2: it's <sighs> August now. I mean, there can't be a lot of time left on this clock.
1: Correct. You know, we 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 just did an interview. You know, a, a week ago, and uh, at the end of the interview, they they, they said, you know, Zach, what happens if you get deported back to Afghanistan? And it's one word, like, dead yeah like and, and uh, here's the it's just the,
0: fucking, the lunacy of this is like how are we gonna like are we gonna fly a c-17 back or are we like oh we're gonna fly a deportation flight to put all these people back into Kabul like it's just so asinine that that would even be like an option so like so yeah I guess if you're listening call your representatives and just
2: yeah, get them to do their fucking job cold, man like after all of this you know
1: yeah, I mean, who are we if we're not a nation that keeps our promises? Yeah. yeah. it's not a good look. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, Tom, tell us where we can find the book, or where you'd like people to go to get it. And do you want to talk about P. B. Abate at all? And kind of,
1: yeah, maybe I'll I'll do and give a quick P. B. Pitch. Um, so M- Abate pitch. So Sergeant Manabate is a was a sniper in um, three five. Uh, posthumously awarded the Navy cross. And, uh, in April of 2020, I had, uh, three Marines commit suicide that month. And and the first one was a a guy, he, he overdosed on opiates, not a hundred sure one way or the other there. Uh, that was, that was a tough one. Um, because right before we deployed, he had enlisted in 08. And so he, he was at the end of it. He could EAS and he was uh, one of my designated marshmen, and he was my best land nav guy. And, and uh, he said, you know, sir, I was going to extend for the deployment. I just had a son. I'm going to get out. And uh, I said, you know, McLeod, you're you're my best shot uh, in the platoon. You're my land nav guy. I'd ask you to reconsider. So he talks to his wife and he comes back the next day and says, you know, sir, I talk to my wife and you're my family too. I'll go on the deployment. A few months later, um, the engineer stepped on the pressure plate. McLeod was over the charge. And as I came up, uh one of my marines handed me uh his body parts parts of his hand, I think, and uh, it's this weird dilemma uh because this guy's a triple amputee, and you're hand holding parts of his body that will not be able to be re- reattached yeah so like initially put it in my cargo pocket, I'm like, "What the fuck am I going to do with yeah. his fingers like uh and he was initially very like calm, cool, and collected um, uh, but he it, it took a long time for us to get uh, a medevac in, and he started to die. And uh, you know, I, he 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 had um, scholarships to play baseball, but he enlisted and said, and he and he talked about when he got out, he was going to coach his son's baseball team and, and that kind of stuff. And, and I'm trying to talk to this guy who's now missing three limbs and say, hey, you got to you got to stay with us because Desmond needs you to be his baseball coach and you're going to play catch with your son. And like I said, you, you I think our training is world-class and it prepares us just for just about everything. But when you're having a conversation with a a, a guy dying about his son, it's, there's no, there's no training for that. Yeah. And, uh, but the will to live is a powerful thing. And he, and he fought and he, and he stayed with us. Uh, but he never stopped fighting that battle and, and 10 years later saying and claimed another soul. Uh, and, and so I said, you know, um, what what are we doing? What what's out there? What's going on? And 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 so I started to read all the VA suicide reports. And uh I found the leading possible cause of veteran suicide was feelings of disconnectedness and isolation. Uh, and that um and what I found that was also surprising in those VA suicide reports is that they that they established no correlation between combat and veteran suicide. And uh, which is usually surprising to to folks. And there's actually non-combat veterans are twice as likely to commit suicide as combat veterans. And so I looked at the veteran service organization landscape, which there's 45,000 veteran service organizations out there. And I'm like, I, what organizations out there that is inclusive to everybody who served? Cause I want to find that organization and I want to support them. And what I found is that uh, all these organizations were uh, you had to check all these boxes and you had to be a special forces or you had to be wounded. Um, and to me, it's a thing to celebrate that our nation takes care of the people who make the biggest sacrifice. It's something to celebrate that we take care of our wounded, that we take care of our special forces. And so uh, I applaud and I'm thankful that we live in a nation that, that keeps that commitment to, to those folks. Uh, but I thought, you know, that's, that's like 1% of the 17 million veterans who serve fall into special forces or wounded category. And, and, and what the data is saying is like, it's not just a special forces are wounded suicide is not a combat wounded right. kind of problem. It's a veteran problem. And to me, it made a lot of sense that if if you're on a, a C-17 flight crew, like you, you feel like you're part of a tribe. Like you, you put C-17s in the air. You know, if, if you're, if you're on a, a, a Huey flight crew or you drive a truck or you keep maintain radios, like everybody feels like, Hey, I'm, I'm on this team. Uh, everybody on this team is, is willing to die for everybody else on this team and we have a a mission and 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 you know the end of every mission statement is the is the purpose right and so that's and that's universal to what humans need a tribe and a purpose and the military quite literally issues you that yeah. it says here's your squad and here's your purpose uh and and so the the fact that as people transition they struggle with like where's my tribe and what is my purpose it it, it seems kind of ubiquitous to kind of all um and so i said you know let and, and then a lot of organizations are out there are, if you've attempted suicide or you're overdosed, um, they're willing to kind of come alongside you and kind of support you through that kind of stuff. And it seemed very reactive. And I said, like, what if we can get a little bit pre-act, preemptive, uh, proactive, left of bang? Um, and what if we get rid of all the barriers and just say, if you raise your right hand, you're in. Yeah. And uh, And because maybe the guys at this table can check a lot of boxes potentially, you know, I, I think that, and, and so we can maybe, ha- maybe there's a disability, maybe there's a disorder, maybe there's a wound, maybe there's a special, we can, but I don't want to be narrowly defined by any one box. And, and and so I felt like everything was trying to put us veterans into like a certain box. And I just said, uh, what if we just said like service matters? Uh, it doesn't make you special, but it matters. And, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll have a space for you. And so we got a 350 acre ranch out in, in, in Montana. And, uh, we said, uh, if you served, if you're active duty reserve national guard, uh, if you're a PFC or a general, uh, this, this is your patrol base. Uh, and the only requirement is that you've raised your right hand. And, uh, and it, and, and we started to bring people out there and run our, we call it our return to base program. And, and, um, the idea of the patrol base is it's, it's where you rest and refit, you know? And, and so you come here, rest and refit, uh, patrol base Abate, because there's truly nobody more legendary, uh, that I've ever met or known than Matt Abate. And so I want to keep, continue to honor his legacy and I want, uh, people to be able to come out and, and rest and refit. And so we run our program out there, uh, free of cost because again, it can't be any, any barriers to entry. It can't be like, oh, well I would do that, but, uh. I can't afford a, a flight. It's like, well, we'll pick you up. And it, and it can't be like, and, and we do we do it around uh, shared interests. So we do uh, jujitsu, weightlifting, uh, yoga, art, music, books. Um, it's what are you into? Then let's go do that thing out there. And and so the the idea is it's got to be kind of accessible for everybody. Um, and so we run that return to base program out of our headquarters. And then we've got uh, 45 local chapters because we believe that you want to continue that in that community and continue that connection, not just out at the patrol base, which the program we want to run at the patrol base, I can definitively tell you uh, works. The, the, the connections that are formed there are, are in fact saving lives, uh, but we want to be able to sustain and endure. And so we've got our local chapters kind of all around the country that, that are sustainable and enduring. Um, that's uh, bate in a nutshell. Um, you can get the book anywhere you buy books. Uh, so, yeah. Well,
2: thanks so much, dude. Um, that was um, either way, with all of the negative that's surrounding so much, it's, it's truly incredible. Um, and it's a story that I think needs to be heard in, in a lot of different ways, you know, not just Sax, but everybody that struggled to go through that debacle. It's, it's important to remember that. Book is always faithful. Thanks for coming to the Black Rifle Cop podcast. Thanks.
0: That concludes today's training. Any questions? Jump titties, boy!